The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. MSW Media. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. Well, this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show. My goodness. The excitement level is through the roof. You're back for part two, the the grand conclusion of our list of the 20 most important cocktails ever. The the hair on the back of my neck standing up. That's how that's how thrilled I am. And I'm also thrilled to have back with us from the last episode. He is one of the, the preeminent spirits writers in the world, Mr. Brad Jaffe. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. My legs have fallen asleep because I've been here he in the same moved. position for Two days. 48 straight days. Yeah. That's my commitment to you. My Man, to you. I, we, you know, that's the kind of commitment we like around here. Brad, it's good to have you back. I, I want to recap real quick for everybody. I know I, I know you've listened to the episode, but just to recap, we, we last episode we did number 20 through 11, the most important cocktails ever. I didn't say the best cocktails ever. I said important, meaning influential. They left their mark on the adult beverage loving world. And just to run through, uh, number 20 was the Irish coffee. I'm going to count down. It was 20 Irish coffee, 19 mint julep, 18 Tom Collins, 17 Cuba Libre, 16 Boilermaker, 15 Mojito, 14 Kamikaze, 13 White Russian, 12, the Mai Tai, and the number 11 most important drink ever was the Negroni. And Brad had a problem with that. Brad did not agree with me. He felt like I gave the Negroni short shrift. So let go ahead. Bum rap. Yeah, bummer. You you yeah. feel like the Negroni should have been higher. Personally, especially nowadays, because, you know, think about any cocktail uh, bar, you know, craft cocktail lounge that you go to today that doesn't have some variation of the Negroni as one of their staple signature drinks on their menu. It's just so formative. I, I hear you. What I would argue is this. Yes, it's very popular now, but I don't know that it inspired a movement or it got more asses in the bar. I don't know. And, and, I, and I could be wrong. I'm, I'm often wrong. I'm usually wrong. But I'm going to say this. I, I stand by the 10 drinks that I put in front of it. I stand by that. Because I feel like each one of them in their own right just had a little bit more significance to the drinking culture. Well, I totally agree with you in terms of the length of the impact, because like you say, Negroni is more, uh, you know, it's a hundred year old cocktail as of last year, but it's been relatively a recent revival. So, you know, when Negroni week came online like 10 years ago or whatever that was, we really started to see its impact felt again. 
but there was that period where it kind of it dissipated and people didn't know about it. Whereas people knew about the kamikaze, the mojito, through the dark ages of 80s and early 90s cocktails, people were still ordering kamikazes and mojitos, even when they thought cocktail with Tom Cruise was an accurate representation of what uh, a cocktail bar should be. What a strange time that was. Uh, <laughs> what a strange time that movie cocktail. You know, you, everybody remembers the famous scene where Tom Cruise stands up in the bar and he does the barman, the last barman's poet poem. And it, it yeah. just always struck me as one of the most, it just is so indicative of how fucked up things were in the 80s that that would get made. <laughs> Can you imagine they're in a club in New York City? In the height of the 80s, everyone is hopped up on cocaine and Duran Duran and the Miami sound machine. And this smirking, diminutive little guy stands up on the bar and the entire place shuts up so that he can fucking recite a poem. I love it. That is- and, and by the way, the only thing that you can hear, the only, everybody's like, you could hear a pin drop as he's saying this poem, except at one point, some guy yells out, give us a kiss, you sexy beast. And all I kept thinking was... <laughs> That could never have happened without like some the Scientologists coming in and dragging that guy off to re-education camp. I would say, though, that the epitome, the epitomization of how fucked up the culture was in the 80s was that a movie like Mannequin could get made. You know, like what was the pitch like when the guy comes in? He's like, OK, so this guy falls in love with the department store ma- and it's just like, stop talking. Yeah. Make it. Make that movie. And then but before the end of the decade. You have Andrew McCarthy, who had acted across across the screen with not one, but two separate movies with co-starring an inanimate object. That's right. The second one being Weekend the and Dead Bernie. Yeah. Well, it was a different time. I'll say that. It was a different time. It's a good way to put it. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, I loved cocktail because it was this idea that the way to get with ladies was not only to make them drinks, but to juggle them. You know, he could juggle the drinks and he was the best at juggling the drinks. And I always, th- I always thought flair bartending itself was s- just silly. You know, yeah, it, it offended it me silly. on a fundamental level because I don't want my bartender to, just like I don't want my, when I get on a, a plane, I think it's Southwest Airlines where the, where the flight attendants are joking around it. I don't fucking want that. Yeah, I want you to be serious. Place. I don't want any yeah. jokes. I don't want any juggling. Same thing with my bartender. I want my bartender to be like my fucking surgeon, okay? Stop juggling. <laughs> stop juggling the triple sec and just pay attention and make my Long Island iced tea the right way, okay? Well, Dan, as, as Rick James famously said, cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> cocaine is a hell of a drug. Um, all right, well, listen, we, this is, Brad, this is the top 10, man. The most important yeah. cocktails ever would you say that once we reveal this, the, 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 the cocktail world will be forever changed? I think you're going to forever change podcasting and the internet. The internet might be broken, I'm anticipating, yeah. after this list is revealed. So get in whatever kind of uh, porn downloading or whatever you want to do before this list is, is, is revealed. And, and, and here it comes. We're going to do it right now. Brad's going to drink every one of these drinks as we go. And <laughs> not to give too much away, but he is pulling out, he's currently pulling out a blender. Oh, oh boy. boy, did I just tease it? Did I just tease number 10? <laughs> well, let's get to it. Here we go, folks. Sit back, have a drink, strap yourself in. The top 10 most important cocktails ever begins right now. 
Okay, well, I'm excited to kick off our top 10. 11 through 20 was so exciting. But now we're the creme de la creme, which some of these drinks, I think, actually have creme de la creme in there. We'll find out. At number 10, could be surprising for a few people. And by that, I mean stupid people. It is a, it's an unusual choice, I would say, for the top 10, but this is an unusual list. And here to talk about this drink, our returning champion, my good friend, the owner of Elixir in San Francisco, and also Fresh Victor. Make, they'll make you there's some cocktail mixers for you that are fresh and delicious, and they'll make them for you. Fresh Victor, please welcome back H. Joseph Airman H. How are you, man? I'm excellent. How you doing? I'm doing good, buddy. So we got to jump right in. I know people are very excited to hear what's happening here. The number 10 drink on this list is arguably the most famous frozen cocktail of all time, arguably. And it's the pina colada. Arguably. Arguably. Now, I, I want to hear your side of this, H. As a, as a seasoned bar veteran, tell us your thoughts on the pina colada. It's one of those drinks that I think... When the cocktail revival, whatever you want to call it, Renaissance came about, was one of those drinks that was kind of discarded as uh, an overly sweet concoction, like so many of the drinks of the 80s and 90s. But it's the it's the one drink that I think most seasoned bartenders came back around to admitting to it being their their biggest guilty pleasure because it's so damn good. Yeah, it's a delicious drink. You. I don't care how what a hard ass you are. If you're slamming whiskey, you can't have a pina colada and not be happy. I mean, it just it just it just brings up feelings of being on a beach and summer and fun, right? Yeah, the flavors. Like, I mean, that's that's it's again, you know, the the sign of a of a really successful great drink is how well all the flavors come together. And that simple combination of rum, pineapple, and coconut, it's just magic. And it obviously there was a song, uh, 1979 Escape, the, also known as the Pina Colada song. Rupert Holmes. I mean, yeah, I think it's hook. yeah, the drink the, the just sh- hook yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and and it, it well, I mean, I I've talked about that. I talked about that song on the show before, which is just what a fantastic concept. There, he's cheating on his wife and takes that out in the personals and finds out that the person he's going to meet to cheat on his wife with is his wife. She's also cheating on him. <laughs> and instead of <laughs> instead of immediately saying, fuck you, I want a divorce, they're like, no way. And then they go to the dunes and they do it. But that's what this drink will do to you, I guess. <laughs> this drink will just make you, you know, do crazy things. So tell us a little bit about Fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of fresh juice-based cocktail mixers that we came up with because as this cocktail revolution started going forward and I was making all kinds of fresh produce driven cocktails that elixir, which is what I got to be known for. What back then they called the California style versus the, the boozier cocktails of the New York style that, that myth quickly got dispelled. But um, these are just, they're really, there's those simple flavor combinations. We have seven different flavors that, that you can use to make a whole myriad of drinks and it's all fresh juice, fresh produce, nothing artificial. Do you do anything that would work in a pina colada? Absolutely. We have a, a pineapple ginger root that I make a killer ginger colada with this. And where can people go to find Fresh Victor? At shop.freshvictor.com. You can get direct to consumer shipping. If you're going to have a pina colada, do it with the Fresh Victor, everybody. And H, it's always great to see you, my friend. You will be back in this episode. 
a, a little a little bit higher up the list. But uh, so we'll be talking to you shortly, my friend. At number nine on the list is a drink that needs no introduction. But I will tell you this. Boy, are there a lot of people that claim to have invented this drink. I've done a ton of research and I can't nail it down. There's about probably 10 plausible stories uh, that exist. I can tell you that this drink became very widely, the awareness of this drink rose tremendously thanks to a television show by the name of Sex in the City. I think you know what drink I'm talking about. It's the Cosmopolitan. And here to talk about the Cosmopolitan with us, to tell us about the Cosmopolitan, back again for her second appearance in the top 20, Bad Birdie. How are you? Good. How are you, Dan? It's good to see you again, and uh, and and thanks for doing this. So tell us about the Cosmopolitan. I mean, w- w- would you agree when I said there's so many there's people so claim to have invented this drink or that oh, were yeah. credited with inventing this drink? Uh, Dale DeGroff was credited with inventing this drink and said, no, I didn't invent this drink. Right, right. He, uh, Dale DeGroff said, uh, he said he only added the uh, orange zest. That, that was his little touch to the Cosmopolitan. Okay, yeah. So tell but, us... Yeah. Tell us about it. So um, the Cosmo was pretty much born at the cusp of the gay rights movement, and it became very popular, like you said. We started to see it in uh, the Sex and the City show. Um, There's a lot of debate over who started this cocktail, but um, I think if you do your research enough, it's widely credited that uh, Toby Ciccini, I think that's how you say his name, invented the modern-day Cosmo where you have at, you know, in New York at uh, Odeon in New York. I think, yes, yes. I think, yeah, that's, that's um, because there was a, there was a version of it and I know Toby mm-hmm. and I know his story was, there was a version in San Francisco in the eighties that was basically, you know, what everybody yeah. was doing then roses, lime juice, roses, grenadine yeah. uh, in a martini glass with a tri- with a twist and, and just, you know, well vodka. Well, I think that's uh, John Kane, right? The bartender in San Francisco. Okay, he, yeah. I think he's more known for popularizing the Cosmopolitan. Okay. You know? Yeah. So then but Toby gets a hold of it. Yeah. That. Yeah, we do start to see that um, in, in the 80s. And, you know, the, the Cosmopolitan kind of started as, uh, if you go back a little bit, we we see more of it like a... It, like a vodka gimlet almost, you know, and you see it with Rose's lime juice. And then later on is where, um, you know, we get Cointreau and it was introduced by the French. And uh, that's when people started to play with the, the recipe a little bit more. Well, I think one of the things that, and why I have it on here on a list of important cocktails was the Cosmopolitan sort of spawned the cocktail menu. There wasn't a mm-hmm. lot of cocktail menus back then, but it was it was such an, a tremendously popular drink that yes, they started yeah. you know they just started making a list with it and putting it on there and and that I, I think that what it did also because again it was the Sex in the City I mean that it became such a huge thing that suddenly you looked around and everybody in every bar was drinking it and and here's the thing say what you will about the the drink whether you think it's a sophisticated cocktail or not. It was way more sophisticated than what people were drinking back then. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I have, uh, you know, my my wife, this is one of my wife's favorite classic cocktails, the Cosmopolitan. And she tells me stories 
about before, she, you know, she was underage still, but she remembers watching Sex in the City when she was about 19. And she's uh, she she knew that all she wanted to do when she turned 21 was go to a bar, have a cosmopolitan, just like they did in Sex in the City. You know, so what a perfect drink. You have this beautiful, you know, martini glass. It's a pink colored drink. It's, you know, it's going to attract a lot of girls to to order this cocktail. And, you know, some of the most successful bars, you cater more towards women. You're going to have a successful bar because now men are going to follow to where the women are. Exactly. And and ultimately what it comes down to is is it, it put more asses in seats in bars, yeah. right? Yeah, and then what sure. happens is then they start to find out about and, – and don't be wrong. I, I actually like a Cosmopolitan. I'm not going to shit on it and go, yo, it's a you – know, I, I, I would – I would drink a Cosmopolitan right now if I had one. Can, is there one around here? No. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the thing about it is it got people into the bars and it, it exposed them to to everything else that was out there. And that's why I think it's it, – that's why it made it into the top ten on this list because mm-hmm. – it, it was a very consequential drink. And at one point you could argue that it was certainly in the United States. It was the most popular cocktail of its day at one point. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And then uh, speaking of popular cocktails, we only have eight more. And uh, something tells me that Bad Birdie's going to be joining us at another point on this list to talk about one of one of the drinks at the top here. So I appreciate you being with us as always, and we'll see you again in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. All right. Wow. We're at number eight. I can't believe we're all the way up to number eight. The number eight drink on our list is one that was invented here where I live, in Los Angeles, California. At least that's how... Lore has it. I mean, uh, you know, pretty much any any classic cocktail out there is going to have at least three or four origin stories. But I I'm pretty sure the origin story on this one is not in dispute about where it happened. The drink is called the Moscow Mule. And here to talk about the Moscow Mule is uh, my old friend, one of the mixological world's uh, true True heroes. I guess you know, I don't bandy that word about often, Mr. Simon Ford of Forge Gin. How are you, man? I'm good. And I love that the first thing I'm going to do now that I'm on your show is dispute the origin story of the Moscow Mule. Oh, no. All right. Well, first, let me let me throw out my version that I know. The version that it. I know was a, a bar called the Cock and Bull on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, there was a guy there uh, who... He represented Smirnoff vodka, and this is right after World War II, where Russian vodka was about as popular as, uh, you know, Japanese kamikaze. It was not a popular thing. And then uh, he was in this bar, the Cock and Bull, and the guy in the Cock and Bull had some a bunch of a surplus of ginger beer that he couldn't get rid of. And he also happened to have bought a bunch of copper mugs uh, that he had and they put their heads together and they thought maybe we throw some lime juice in there and we'll play around. And next thing you know, a libational legend was born. Now you're going to dispute this. Okay. But it's, but, but we're, we're close. We're talking, we're talking the same language, Dan. So we're, we're, we're in a good place. So the, the, the cock and bull did exist. It was a guy called Jack Morgan, um, that had this ginger beer, the cock and bull ginger beer. And he had this surplus of these copper mugs there and he didn't know what to do with it. Now the cock and ball is dear to my heart, even though it's not there anymore, but it was this mock British tavern that was having a lot of fun in Hollywood. And it was like by the garden of Allah and Ciro's and all of the, and the Trocadero and that whole part of um, sunset Boulevard that where all of the partying was happening in that period. 
and he's the guy that sets up and has this you know pub and he was a complete anglophile and so he put like old english newspapers on the wall and the two key drinks that he served there um was the gin and tonic and he made a huge thing of the gin and tonic and the other was the moscow mule which he pre-bottled both of those drinks would pre-bottle both eventually now if we rewind to the moment and the, the alleged meeting of the of the of Jack Morgan, uh, John Martin, who was uh, part of Hublin, who was a big distributor at the time, and Rudolf Kunet, who had, was the owner of Smirnoff, it is true that these three guys got together and created this drink to get rid of this surplus. Uh, and it's true that they create would find its life and its home. It, this place in California, the Cock and Ball, but where that meeting took place was actually in the area of New York, known as Little Moscow, in a hotel called New York's Chatham Hotel. And that's where they met, that's where they concocted the idea, that's where they put it together, and that's where they set their plan in place. Oh so, my God, I didn't know. Look, all this time, I thought it happened out here at the Cock and Bull. Well, the Cock and Bull is the place that made it famous. Made and this it is famous. just where the meeting happened. And so the only thing I'm disputing is where that meeting took place. Okay. The meeting took place there. All right. The well, reason this, is, I, this is why I have you on, man. You're the expert. <laughs> the reason I love the story of the, the Moscow Mule and the reason I'm glad that you've invited me to talk about it, though, is, you know, like my second favorite pastime or my, it was being a brand ambassador, right? And I, some people call it a job, but I definitely would have called it a pastime. I did it for many, many years. And... Um, I would say that the, 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 the in that meeting, they also came up with one of the first great moments of being a brand ambassador because in order to really, truly get everybody to start serving this drink, they had one of the first Polaroid cameras. And so what they would do is they anyone that would buy some of these copper mugs, some of this Smirnoff that was, again, just starting to break out onto the scene at the moment before it would sort of become the biggest brand in the world, um, and uh, in this ginger beer, they would go around. If you ordered it, they'll take a picture of you with this Polaroid camera, and that was kind of a really cool. So thing kind of the, the first sort of social media, right there, right? It was right. This is the Instagram of the day. It's the Insta photo of the moment. You yeah, that's know? amazing. Um, and you know, and part of the reason why I put it so high on the list at number eight is because, as, as Simon alluded to, it would go on to become the most popular spirit in the world. Vodka was not a huge category in the United States, and it certainly is now. And that's why I put the Moscow Mule that high, because that drink really helped revitalize, really bring vodka to the masses, especially here in the United States. And vodka, I think, is the most off-quaffed spirit in the United States. Uh, if I, I, I don't think I'm wrong on that, but um, and now you've it, it spawned, you know, now you've got Tito's and all these other huge brands that are out there, Grey Goose and all the absolute. I don't think any of that happens if those guys hadn't got together in New York and no, created I, the Moscow Mule, and that's why it's <laughs> that's why it's number eight on our list. And now uh, I would love to talk to you all day about this, but you know we got a little time crunch here. Simon Ford, as always, you, your your insights are invaluable. So much so that I'm going to have you back on this show, this episode, in just a couple of drinks. I know everybody out there loves hearing from Simon, so don't fret. He'll be back. Thanks, Simon. Talk to you in a little bit. We're at number seven on what we're drinking's list of the 20 most important cocktails of all time. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a controversial uh, selection here at number seven. I think there are people out there that are going to question how this cocktail why it isn't higher up the list. And hey, I'm welcome. You can go to at the imbiber and, and, and shoot out your arguments for that. I'm, I'm all ears because I, you know, I don't, 
I'll say this. While this is the definitive list, and any other list is bullshit, yeah. I can handle the criticism. So here to talk about the number seven drink, to tell us what the number seven drink is, is a man who hails from around the area that this drink is named after. So there we, that's why we're having you on. Cause other than that, you have no real qualifications to talk about the drink other than you've spent some time in the city that it's named after. And I was a full-time professional bartender in that city. And that's however, city. yeah. However, it was way after this drink was invented way after. So folks, without further ado, Tom Caltabiano, comedian, Emmy winning writer, comedian, Tom Caltabiano, frequent guest on this show. Tom, Tell us about the Manhattan cocktail. The Manhattan, which uh, now we've talked about it. We're, we're on number seven, right? Seven. And you're saying there might be some uh, there. You're going to get some angry emails that say, uh, Dan, why not number two? You know, how why does it, how does a Manhattan, three? such an iconic drink, yeah. how is it dropped? How is it seven? How could there possibly be six more drinks that you deem more important than the Manhattan yeah, I mean, you're making up this list, right? You're in charge of this list. This is, I have, I have made this list all on my own. Right, and anybody else who has a list or disagrees can kiss your ass. That's right. Your, yeah. your words, not mine. Do you, Tom, do you agree with the placement on this one? Seven for the Manhattan? Uh, here's, here's my feeling, Dan. Yes. Uh, once you're in the top 10, it, it's, a, it's a coveted place. So you're already in the top 10, Right. So any top 10 rock songs, you know, if all of a sudden something from the strawberry alarm clock is in the top, you're like, no, no, that can't be. But all these drinks are really, really solid. So I, I don't know what your number one pick is. And I'm going to tune in to find out what it's that is coming up a little later in the show. Very exciting. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, great. I have no problem with this being number seven. Let me just throw this out so people know, in, in, in case there's some uh, adult beverage neophytes out there, it's whiskey, sweet vermouth, and bitters. That's the Manhattan. And you can, rye is traditionally the whiskey, but you could also use bourbon. You could use a blended whiskey, a Canadian whiskey, a Tennessee whiskey. But rye is traditionally the type of whiskey that is used to make a Manhattan. And I think when the Manhattan started, rye was the big whiskey. So now, you know, and I think for picking number seven now, Dan, when you're saying maybe there's controversy, when Mad Men came out, Right. The Manhattan wasn't the giant drink anymore. No. Right. So it, it helped revive. So we're you can we're only judging at this point in time. So we're talking. I don't even know. I've lost track. I don't know what year we're in, but it's we we the worst year in recorded history. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, we're in it. Yes. And so Look we, at us. <laughs> well, there's some other years that were bad. But uh, I think, Dan, now we're talking in 2020. The Manhattan, if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, you think we would, we'd have to remind you of what it is. Well, not you, but most people would be like, what's a Manhattan? Most people, yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know. And, and it's, I mean, it is, it is in a, it is such a, an important drink when it comes to, to cocktail culture. Obviously this drink has been around as always, there's a bunch of different origin stories, but the most plausible one was that this was invented around around 1870 uh, at a banquet hosted by Winston Churchill's mother but that said there are there are reports that Winston Churchill's mother Lady Randolph wasn't even in New York at that time so it could be complete bullshit there's another one that says a guy 
on uh, and on Houston Street in the 1860s, uh, invented it. So who knows? But what I do know is this, Tom. In terms of simplicity, timelessness, elegance, it's hard to find a a drink that I would ag- I totally agree. And the shortcut would be it's it's a martini with whiskey. Not a hundred percent accurate, but close. You know, for people that can't get their heads wrapped around and uh, you know can't uh, discern. But I think yes, it's a it's a very iconic cocktail and a delicious cocktail. You know, there's certain cocktails that you go not not ordering that. Manhattan, I would be happy, Dan, if the one and only time you ever bought me a drink it was the Manhattan, I would be very happy. And and. I want this list, speaking of timeless, I want this list to be timeless, but I will say this, during the time, the era that we're living in right now, there's something particularly pleasing about the Manhattan because I've fixed a few at home during quarantine and it's evocative of being out and being in a, in a, in a really great bar and, and maybe ordering a steak and, and just, you know, the, the mahogany and it's just a dimly lit place and, and having that drink really sort of conjures up memories of all those places that I've been that I guess we all kind of took for granted until now. And so maybe, you know, make yourself a Manhattan and and close your eyes and remember the best place that you ever had one. That is a great observation. Tom Caltabiano, I want to thank you for joining us. Your second appearance on this list, your second and final appearance, Tom, but I, I know you'll be back on this show uh, yeah, soon. I- I'm sorry to hear that I'm fired. I'm honored to be uh, representing the Manhattan or a little bit. It's a classic drink. It deserves to be in the top 10. Excellent choice, Dan. Well, we've reached the cusp of the top five. The number six drink on the What We're Drinking's definitive list, the 20 most important cocktails ever, is it is a... I mean, they, they don't get more classic than this. They don't. Well, I guess you could argue there's five that get more classic that are above it. No, there are. This is one of the all-time classic cocktails, and it could easily have been number one, but it's number six. And here to tell us about it, back, he was just on a little bit earlier, the proprietor of Elixir in San Francisco and the the Fresh Victor Cocktail Mixers. Look at that. Rhymed. Back again, H. Joseph Airman H. Good to see you. Good to speak to you again. Absolutely. It's one of the most important cocktails in that it's, uh, again, simple. As I mentioned before, great cocktails should be and can be simple. And also, it's the, it's the cocktail that most cocktail aficionados will judge a bartender by. They want to say, Does this, just, let's see how this bartender is. Make me a daiquiri. Now, how do you make yours? I like it with, uh, I think an important aspect of the daiquiri is you, you've got to taste the rum. You got to have enough rum, and that's where a lot of people go wrong. First of all, and other than that, it's just simply lime and sugar. So, I uh, if I'm making one by hand, I would use an ounce, an ounce of uh, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, a little bit more bitter than sweet, and two ounces of rum. And uh, but at home, I use my fresh Victor Mexican lime and agave mix, and do equal parts, two parts Mexican lime and agave, two parts rum. Shake it up, done. Now, a, a, a very famous figure in history who popularized this drink is Ernest Hemingway. Tell us a little bit about the Hemingway daiquiri. Hemingway didn't like sugar, so he preferred a little grapefruit juice in there. And to get a hint of, of sweet, they added a little maraschino liqueur 
And so with the with the uh, with the hemming, you get that grapefruit and that you know the maraschino liqueur is made with uh, it's got a kind of a nuttiness to it, and, uh, and it's a it's a great liqueur. So it has a really unique twist on uh, on that. I think in San Francisco the daiquiri is pretty goddamn popular, right? It is pretty popular. Yeah, absolutely. But the uh, I would say the Tommy's Margarita is yeah is, is could be even more popular. Well, we'll see. You never know. Maybe a margarita will end up on this list. It hasn't yet, but it could. Could happen. Teaser. <laughs> I uh, I don't even know what else there is to say about the daiquiri. I mean, yeah, it's just such a, it's just such a great drink, and it's such a great drink to have now in the summer. It's fairly easy to make, and now that H has fresh Victor, he's even made it easier for you. Look at that plug, right? Look at that. Yeah, there you go. H, I always love talking to you, my friend, and it was great having you on involved in this, both episodes. I appreciate your time and your knowledge, expertise, and uh, go check out Elixir. When the time comes that we can go to bars again, I highly recommend it. It is one of the great bars in America, and it's right there in San Francisco, and tell H that I sent you, and you'll get, you'll get nothing from that. They won't even nothing. There's no benefit, really. No, not any. You might get thrown out. You might get kicked out. Friend of Dan Dunn's. See you later. Uh, H, thanks for joining, man. Thanks, man. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. You too. Hey, all. Being on lockdown these past few months has been tough on all of us. Something I've found to be extremely helpful in maintaining my sanity during this challenging time is sticking to daily routines. Maintaining a sense of structure can help prevent you from feeling overwhelmed, and I highly recommend you keep doing the little things you used to do on the regular in the pre-COVID era, like shaving, for instance. Unfortunately, Harry's is here to help you look your best while saving you a little cash along the way. Yes, Harry's has your grooming needs covered with high-quality blades as low as $2 each, delivered straight to your doorstep. Cut out the middleman, manufacturing blades in a German factory that's been honing the craft for a century, which means you get incredibly high-quality blades at factory direct prices. And during this trying time, you'll feel a little better about your purchase. Not only is Harry's donating 1% of proceeds to nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans, they're also giving $1 million worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. That's what I call good karma for you and Harry's. What we're drinking listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash drinking. That's harrys.com slash drinking. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash drinking to start shaving better today. Hey, this is Tiffany Thiessen, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Danda. Well, now we have reached the top five. What a moment. Oh, boy. Just what a journey it's been. We've laughed. We've cried. We've had drinks, a lot of, a lot of drinks. We've had 15 drinks. we got five more to go. The, uh, this drink, again, familiar theme couple of people claim to have invented it. This one, we can narrow it down to two places that plausibly claim to have invented it. One is Long Island, and the other place called Kingsport, Tennessee. And I think this is going to surprise some people how this made it into, into the top five on this list. But you know what? I don't give a shit. You can be surprised all you want. It's my list. God damn it. The drink is the Long Island Iced tea. That's right. The potent combination of vodka, rum, tequila, and gin. 
okay? This is the one drink that introduced legions of people to all kinds of spirits all at once because they were all in the same drink. And here to talk about the Long Island iced tea, Bad Birdie herself. Welcome back, Amanda. Thank how you, are Jay. you? Thank you. Long Island iced tea. Come yeah, on. Yeah, I love. So this is uh, one of those cocktails that um, I love to admit that I actually love this cocktail and when done properly with fresh ingredients. Um, this is also one of my wife's favorite cocktails as, as well. I actually have a, a little cheater bottle with all the spirits in it right now, sitting right here at home. Well, let's get let's go there right now. Let's okay. tell everybody what's in a Long Island iced tea. I, I gave the broad strokes, but let's go specifically. We have vodka, gin, rum, tequila, and Cointreau, and um, a little bit of Coke, a little bit of lemon juice, and simple syrup. And actually, I add a little bit of Angostura bitters to mine. Now, the history of this drink, the guy, a guy named Rosebud Butt yes. claims to have invented this drink in Long Island. He entered a contest in the early 70s mm-hmm. to create a mixed drink, and it was a contest sponsored by Triple Sec. And he claims, and he, he very strongly Strong claims, claim. invented that drink. But then there's <laughs> also a place in Tennessee, as I mentioned, that had a drink. Uh, there's a community down there called Long Island in Kingsport, yes. Tennessee, and they said it was invented by a guy named Ransom Bishop. Old Man Bishop. Old Man Bishop. So yeah. what do you so, think? So so I know the story starts in the 1920s with Old Man Bishop in his community, Long Island in Tennessee. And um, it, the drink, he called it Old Man Bishop. And it contained whiskey, gin, tequila, vodka, rum, and a little bit of maple syrup. So this was his version. He didn't call it a Long Island. He had it called something else. But we definitely start to see, you know, the influence a little bit. Um, But if you fast forward into the 1960s, there is actually a Long Island iced tea recipe in Betty Crocker's book, in one of her books. Now, now we fast forward a little bit even further to the 1972, and that's when we have the claim from Robert Butt. He entered the competition, like he said, for triple sec, and he has, you know, said to come up with this cocktail and he named it the Long Island Iced Tea. Now, he now Robert Butt says that the old man bishop story is completely false and he didn't even mention the Betty Crocker's book. So, um he does have a strong claim to that cocktail. But I I wanted to show you this that I have. This is a this is a book called Just Cocktails. Okay. Um written in the 1930s. It's an old book that my wife found for me and I tried to look for Old, the old man bishop in here, but um, I didn't. I haven't seen anything in here, and you know this book has a lot of like recorded old recipes, like where they were measuring stuff with like ponies and you know jiggers and. So no, no record of it in there. No record, not not even anything similar um, was in here. So you know, regardless of who invented it, I guess this is the question I I have for you, man. Is like on its face. This drink shouldn't work, right? Because there's, it, there seems to be some disparate things in there. You know, like tequila. You don't think tequila yeah. and rum, and 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 how does it work? How does the Long Island iced tea work? And it tastes good. It does. It actually does taste good. I'm, I think it's just because it's a little bit of everything. You know, we're just talking about half an ounce of all these different ingredients. And when you start to use really premium. Um, ingredients maybe you could use a darker rum or a jamaican rum you know a reposado tequila like 
it does play a you know a little bit of a difference and you can taste a difference in this cocktail i think the most important thing is if you're using fresh lemon juice um and simple syrup it, it's gonna taste good it you know it does taste like like a bit of a lemonade like an Arnold Palmer you know and and again this is one of those ones and if anybody you know people out there that might be asking how is this so high on the list it was an insanely popular cocktail mm-hmm. prior to the you know the craft cocktail resurgence this was yeah. a drink that I, I grew up on the east coast and everybody was drinking this and then it spawned a lot of other, you know, there were a lot of variations that came about after like I, the adios motherfucker is a version yeah. of it with blue curacao instead of triple sec. There's a drink called the, uh, the, the grateful dead, yeah. um, that uh, the, uh, the LA water. Yeah. And there's so many, yeah. it spawned so many copies and, and, and mm-hmm. variations. But again, it, it's one of these things that I think just made people, Oh, and the other thing I think it did was, boy, did it teach uh, legions of bartenders how to move quickly, right? Yeah, for sure. Because when you order a Long Island iced tea, you, you're usually going to get that second where the bartender's like, motherfucker, right? You know, <laughs> God damn it. Because there's a lot of work. It's, a, it's an int- labor-intensive drink, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and then you started to see, you know, it kind of started to fall off a little bit, too, because we started to see bartenders just build it in the glass instead of, you know, properly shaking it up. Um, and to kind of aerate all these ingredients and, you know, uh, instead of having this super boozy cocktail, you know, in a highball glass where all the booze is at the bottom and it's just topped with Coke, you know? So, uh, I think it makes a difference when you do make it properly, you shake it up and, um, and, and serve it. And by the way, it's worth pointing out, Amanda just said top with Coke. There, there isn't any tea in a Long Island iced tea, and, right, and a right. lot of people do think it's it's it looks like iced tea, but there is no tea in a Long Island iced tea. Uh, mm-hmm. We could you could follow Amanda at Bad Birdie on Instagram. It really is one of the the best uh, Instagram accounts that I know of in the bar community. You, you do amazing work, and I'm I'm so happy that you came on here and did this with us. The number five cocktail brought to you by the number one bartender in L.A. <laughs> Bad Birdie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Here, this one's going to be interesting, folks. At number four is a drink that I'm going to admit here that I have personally never tried. That's right. The number four drink on my list of the most important cocktails is a drink I've never had. And the reason I've never had it is one of its key ingredients doesn't sit well with me and uh and that that ingredient is tomato juice and i'm pretty sure i tipped my hand on what the drink is of course it's the bloody mary and now the bloody mary's origins there's a lot of myths about the origins it's as murky as the tomato juice that it's made of okay the story most likely most plausible is a uh a bartender named Ferdinand Pete Petio, who conceived a rudimentary version of this in 1920s at the famed Harry's Bar over in uh, New York Bar in Paris. And then he brought the drink to Manhattan, where he worked at a place called the King Cole Bar at the St. Regis Hotel. And I think it, uh, they, they named the drink then the Red Snapper for a little while there uh, to go because that's what Americans wanted. But uh, because the, the Bloody Mary name is our guest will talk about in a second was re- was related to England. So let's bring on our old friend Simon Ford to talk about the Bloody Mary. Simon, how are you, man? I'm good. Do you and find it do you Bloody find it Mary- odd that I put a drink on this list? 
I didn't say the 20 best drinks Dan ever had. I said the most important drinks. <laughs> I've never had a Bloody Mary, but I understand the significant, this drink is so significant. And why would you say that is? As we get closer to the the, the number one slot, it, you know, this, this is a true contender for the number one spot, in my opinion, because you can go anywhere in the world and they know what this drink is. And, and, and just from a British perspective, you can go into any pub and you could ask for any cocktail in a British pub and get a very rude response. But a Bloody Mary, they'll serve it to you right then and there. It's a drink that has covered uh, all spectrums of life. And my favorite part of it, and the reason I also believe it deserves to be so high up on this list, is that it's a license. It's that, it's that one drink that if you order it at 11 a.m., no one bats an eyelid. They think you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. This is this is a license to drink in the morning. The other drinks, if you ordered a martini at 11 a.m., you know, maybe people are going to give you a funny look. But if you order a Bloody Mary, they go, ah, and, 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 and it's your sort of get out of jail free card for a drink in the morning. I think the other really significant thing about this drink is that there's so much room for interpretation and artistry. It's kind of a blank canvas, this drink. You've got the tomato juice and you've got the vodka. Those are two essential ingredients. But beyond that, boy, you can, you can really go wild. There are so many variations on this drink. You've got the Worcester sauce, the Worcestershire sauce. The yeah. Worcester, the, the, anyway, you have that. Of course, the, the key part that the King Colbar played when it came to New York, when um, Fernand and his Petois, I've got to give, you, give it the French for you there, Dan. Petois. When he came over to, um, when he came over to the King Colbar, that's where he added the Tabasco. And that's like the Pierre de Resistance of the, of the, of the uh, Bloody Mary. And, and of course, Vincent Astor, the Astor family, famous Astor, uh, Astor family, uh, owned the St. Regis Hotel. And they didn't like the name Bloody Mary, which incidentally is said to have been given to the drink in honor of uh, Queen Mary, Tudor of England, because of her. I think, is she the one that said, off with your head? Anyway, I don't think she was particularly, and uh, she definitely executed a number of people. Well, I think, it, yeah, I think it was the, 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 it represented all the blood that was spilled. You know, she was a yeah. brutal, she was, a, <laughs> she had a brutal way of executing people. And again, that was decapitating them. Yeah. So, but, but Vincent Astor didn't like the um, the, the name uh, Bloody Mary, actually. So uh, so that name sort of remained back at um, Harry's New York bar. And and here's another fun fact for you. Uh, uh, Fernand Patois was only 16 when he joined that bar, and it hadn't yet been given its name Harry's. The owner of it at the time was a guy called Ted Sloan, who was a gambling man. He was an ex-jockey, and he was a gambling man. He lost all his money, so Harry McAlone, uh, would, who was a bartender there, inventor of many great drinks, uh, French 75 uh, among them, he would take over and put his name in front of it, Harry's Macalone down there at 5 Rue Danou. So the, uh, but the Bloody Mary would have its name changed to the Red Snapper. And because vodka hadn't quite, and we talked about this in the Moscow meal, hadn't quite taken off, it would have been a gin drink for a short period of time there in, in, in um, New York at the, um, the St. Regis as well. But then, of course, the drink that really makes, you know, it's vodka. Vodka comes back. It's the thing that just sort of adds that kick to that tomato juice that you so love. Well, I, hey, hey, well I'm going to tell you this. I am going to do this. There will be an episode of this show where Dan confronts his nemesis, where Dan finally confronts the demon that is the Bloody Mary. And I'm going to wait till COVID's done and we can go out. And I hope that you'll come with me. I'm going to force down a blood. I'm going to overcome my 
almost pathological aversion to tomato <laughs> juice, and I will drink one. And I feel like I should drink it with you, since you uh, were gracious enough to come on and talk about it for us. As long as we record the show at 11 a.m., I think we'll be good. <laughs> oh, boy, we are getting down to the money here. Here it is. We are in the top three now. We have entered the top three. I can just tell you this. These top three drinks are drinks that I think anybody that drinks has had one uh, and 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 is aware of, of what's in them. So without further ado, the number three cocktail on the what we're drinking list of the most important cocktail ever. That drink is the old fashioned. And here to talk about the old fashioned is an old fashioned kind of guy. My good buddy, bartender from New York City, Charles Hardwick is back with us. How are you, man? I'm good, man. How are you? I missed you since that last episode. Uh, You're back. The old fashioned. I mean, come on. Let's hear your take on this drink. Oh, man. Well, um, in a previous episode, I had said that uh, the Irish coffee was the second drink that I took, uh, I learned to take seriously. And the old fashioned is the first one. And it's really born out of, uh, that's really born out of an experience I had with a guest at a place back in 1997, 98. Uh, I was the um, uh, head bartender there, bar manager, I guess. And it was this this kid, basically, he looked like a kid, came in one afternoon in between lunch and dinner, and he orders an old-fashioned. And I start to make it, and I hadn't made a ton of them then. Uh, The place I worked at prior was not really very cocktail-y. And, and also it's 98. So it wasn't a big cocktail scene. That wasn't in and, Vogue then. Yeah. 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 And so he, he stops me and he's like, hold on a second, but he wasn't a dick about it, but he stopped me. Like, you know, in terms of, he just saw what I was reaching for and he's like, kind of like back up. Okay. I'm going to show you right now how to make, you know, an old fashioned or something like that. And I kind of got, I felt a little bit like, really dude, you're going to come in and show me how to make a drink in my own bar. But I kind of went with it. There was no, almost no one else at the bar. So he showed me how to make it the old, old way. Like we would never make it this way now. It's kind of like, maybe it's kind of like the Wisconsin old fashioned, maybe way, you know what I mean? But he's like, get an orange peel, you know, not orange peel, get an orange slice. And then, you know, he went through the whole thing, get an orange slice. We had the the really bad maraschino cherries. And he's like, take that. And And as he's saying this, he's like, so this is the key to this drink is to make it this right. He's like, the person who always orders this drink is like nine times out of 10, like an older person. And this is the drink they always drink. And if you make it this way, they're always going to appreciate that you take care of making it. And they're always going to be five bucks. Okay. <laughs> they'll, they'll tip you <laughs> so, five bucks, so I guarantee, if they see you. He hooked you by going, by dangling that money in front of you, going, hey, man, you learn to make this right. You can make some cash. Okay. Yeah, so I was like, okay. So I'm like, you know, listening to him. So he's like, take the orange, you know, the cherry, sugar cube dashes of bitters, muddle it up, you know, and you kind of got that. Like, oh, this again, this will be really frowned upon now. Muddle it up, put the um, whiskey in there, and then just kind of, like, stir it a little bit, but really let it settle. It's like that that way they can kind of play with how much they incorporate all those elements into the drink as they sip it. And then as he's like, I guarantee you when they finish and they give you the money and you turn your back, you know, and make change and leave it on the bar and then walk away, you come back, there'll be $5 there. Economically driven. Now, how would you – Make it now. What's your what's your perfect old fashioned? You know, usually I'll use a sugar cube. I kind of like to use sugar cube bitters, brown sugar, um, two ounces of rye or bourbon, Angostura. Uh, you know, kind of get that muddled up. So you're not you're not muddling any fruit in there. 
no fruit muddled. Okay. No, I do. I do. I will muddle the uh, often muddle the orange peel a little bit though. Okay. And then uh, yeah, some, you know I, I kind of vary. You know, in terms of building it in the glass, it depends on what kind of mise I have set up. Uh, but uh, the way I learned from from Sasha Petrosky ultimately was to build it um, to build it in a um, in a sh- in a mixing glass rather. Okay. Uh, and actually use a little bit of soda to dissolve the cube. Um, and nothing. Uh, not, what about? Do you have a preference on a whiskey, like a, a whiskey brand in particular? You, if you're having an old fashioned, what are you making it with? Uh, a nice go to for me as far as bourbons, uh, Old Forester uh, is a nice kind of like go to. Old granddad, man. You know, I love I love a good old granddad, old fashioned. All the um, all the old ones, old. Yeah, old yeah basically old. Yeah, because I'm an old dude, so you know. There I like we go. Dudes. Come on, man. And, and, and you're <laughs> and spry. Then, <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling pretty spry. I'm feeling pretty uh, pretty rambunctious yeah. today. Uh, and and then for Rise Rittenhouse, um, um, or uh, the New York uh, distilling, uh, you know, Alan Katz's. Uh, well, there you have it, folks. The the old fashioned, according to Charles Hardwick, number three. So we only have two more, two more cocktails. I'm not even going to ask you to venture a guess, Charles, because you know so much. You'd, I'm sure you'd already nail what the top two are. But I appreciate all your help on both these episodes with with our cocktails, yeah. and I look forward to having some drinks with you next time I can come to New York City. When I'm allowed to do that again, you know, you'll be one of the first guys I look up, buddy. Same here, man. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. We're all the way up. Well, not all the way. We're very, very close to the top. There are two cocktails remaining on our list of the most important cocktails ever. And I'm going to think anybody out there that has just even the minimal amount of experience with cocktails can probably guess at least one of the cocktails that remains in the top two. And um, and if you're going to guess, I'm going to bet a lot of you would guess this one right here. It is the most regal, I think. It's a, it's a, it's a cocktail that just conjures images of cool and sophistication, and it's been it's been in so many films and and various other aspects of pop culture. It's been mythologized to, and and rightfully so because it is a beautiful drink. And here to talk about it. So our old friend Simon Ford, he's going to tell us what the number two cocktail is on this list. Simon, how are you? Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Dan. And it gives me great pleasure to announce the number two cocktail on Dan Dunn's greatest cocktails list. It is Most important that, cocktails. Most important. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because the Bloody Mary was there and we didn't like that one. Yeah, I wouldn't but, know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> But Dan Dunn's most important cocktails list in at number two is a drink that symbolizes everything that we think of that is cocktail. It is the sign that you see on the door. It's the sign that you see in countless menus. In the 80s and 90s, almost anything that went in this glass was called one, when it, even though it wasn't. But in at number two is the martini, oh, the legendary, man. the classic, wow. the crisp mix of gin vermouth bitters and a garnish this is one of the simplest most sophisticated drinks of course vodka's in on the act these days as well now are you okay with that are you are in your mind is a vodka martini as legitimate as a gin martini yeah okay. all right <laughs> I, I, I can get there i can get there 
I mean, let's 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 start with just thinking about what James Bond did when he when he was drinking the Vesper, which was this mixture of gin and vodka. He was being very. It, it's, it might be James Bond's only politically correct moment. It's a political correctness between vodka and gin, of course, not anything else. But he is there mixing gin and vodka and saying it's okay to do both, right? You don't have to sit in one camp. And sometimes just a good, clean, crisp vodka martini is okay with me, each to their own. But I have to be a purist and think about the history of this drink. And 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 for me, there's this marriage between gin and vermouth that is so spectacular. And I just don't think that vodka gets on with vermouth in the same way which is why you often see vodka martinis without the vermouth or maybe just a tiny splash. You and I have had, we've shared a lot of martinis. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've definitely done that. And, and I guess, um, I think we went to Duke's, didn't we one time when we were in London? Yeah, we did. And Duke's is probably, the the, might be the most famous martini in the world. Um, tell us a little bit about what makes the Duke's martini so special. Well, the Dukes can sometimes be referred to as a naked martini. It hasn't received any dilution. They pull the gin or the vodka straight from the freezer, chilled to a very specific temperature that is theirs, and they will spritz your glass with some vermouth, and they will uh, pour in your gin or your vodka, and then they get a very large uh, lemon peel, Sicilian lemon, and squeeze those oils over and serve olives on the side. And it's done in the most exquisite sort of tea room environment and so you feel very special when you have one and of course when you have two it's a surprise that that place still looks as great because as it does because i'm sure that it could be turned into a dive bar after three of those martinis that way (laughs) it is a drink that has become it's so famous and there's just something about the feeling you get and especially for me personally in the big cities in the big old you know so in London or in New York City or in there's just something so comforting about drinking a martini in a great bar in a great city. And and I want to go I, I do it's it's iconic in so many locations but it's also one of the most personal drinks of all of the drinks that we're probably in your top 20 Dan. I mean everyone finds their own martini recipe that's personal to them, the, 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 the ratio between vodka and vermouth or gin and vermouth, if they add bitters, the type of garnish they want. Do they want an olive, a twist, a cocktail onion? They find their own personal one. It's almost like when you are around a table with cocktail geeks and you hear them ordering their martinis, it's like standing in line at Starbucks and hearing people order their coffees. Everyone has a very specific uh, martini unique to them and then there are of course all of these iconic places whether it's the Savoy or the Atlas in Singapore that serve and you can get anything from it in a nice dainty glass or you can go to one of these old steakhouses and it comes in a bucket and it's, they're both it's valid so and they're both yeah. brilliant. <laughs> but this drink has got many guises and it's so iconic there have been a number of fantastic drinks on this list but there are only a few that I think easily could have, I could have easily put it number one and certainly the martini. In fact, I think the martini did occupy the number one space on an earlier draft of this list, but there was another drink that, uh, that I think just slightly by a nose, just by a nose edged out the martini. And that's coming up next. The, the number one drink on the most important cocktails ever list. And this is really, I think Simon would agree probably the most important list ever made of cocktails, right? This one? 
I think so. As a cocktail geek, I think I've worked it out, and uh, I, and I think you're right. And I'm looking forward to hearing the story. I suspect future generations will look back and and they'll always reference this list. You know, so if you really want to know what was going on in 2020, which was by all other indications, the worst year in recorded human history. Uh, <laughs> but one good thing did happen. Dan made this list and he invited some of the best people in the bar business to help him out with it. And certainly that, that uh, uh, is how I would describe Simon Ford. Forged in, everybody. One of my favorites. I talk about it all the time, anywhere I can. You've heard me talk about it on this show, the Adam Carolla show, anywhere else. I've written about it in Rob Report, and that's because I friggin' love that gin. And Simon uh, put his heart and soul into it. And I recommend you guys check it out. Simon, thanks for uh, joining us, man. Stay tuned, though. Number one's coming up. Well, the moment has arrived. And I don't know about you out there, but I am filled with excitement. We have reached the top of the list of the most important cocktails ever, according to what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. And it's been quite a journey. We laughed. We cried. We got drunk. We had hangovers. We got drunk again, had another hangover. And now we have finally arrived at number one. The number one most important drink cocktail ever is the margarita. Listen to the crowd. Oh, my God. Jesus. Folks, stop. Stop. Okay. Woof, man, they went crazy there. And uh, I don't think anybody else could, could speak to this drink better or more eloquently than our my guest here uh she is the proprietor of Lienda in brooklyn new york and she is the author of spirits of latin america celebration of culture and cocktails with 100 recipes from Lienda and beyond it is available anywhere you buy books and you need to get it she's been with us before on a previous episode it's ivy mix hi Hello. Yay, Margarita. Victor. Yay, Margarita. So you you gave me some crap, and maybe rightfully so on the last episode, for putting the mojito at number 15. Yes. Have I redeemed myself at least somewhat by putting Margarita at number one? Yes. Yes, you have. I, I have I have thoughts. But yes, yes, okay. I think you have. All right. Let's hear it. Okay. Here are my thoughts. Margaritas are for sure the most popular drink in America, I'm not sure if it's the world, but more margaritas are consumed than like any other type of cocktail, um, which is great. The unfortunate thing about it is most people make margaritas really badly. It's still sour mix and crappy tequila, and it's just gross. Um, but made correctly, I think a margarita can be the most delicious drink on the planet, crushable, delicious, insanely good. Um, the other cool thing about it is it's got such a weird history. No one really knows where it came from. I mean, there are stories, there are thoughts. Some thoughts are that it came from Tijuana. Um, other thoughts are that it came from Southern California, close to Tijuana, obviously. Um, other people say it's from Texas. Um, yeah, there was like a Dallas socialite, right? That was Margaret something. Exactly. It, it, you know, we know this, Ivy. There, there are so many origin stories, but certainly in my research as well, the margarita is one that's got at least five plausible origin yeah. stories. Yeah. 
and nobody's really been able to even like David Wondrich and some of the the great uh, spirits historians no one's really been able to settle on what the absolute true origin story is and that's great that's that's beautiful well, i think that's one of the it doesn't matter cuz it's fucking delicious you mentioned how people mess it up you're making a margarita what are we doing all right so a margarita is a daisy and a daisy is a daisy because it has triple second right so like a kamikaze is a daisy a sidecar is a daisy just having triple sec qualifies it as a daisy yes more or less i mean you, you that can okay. also be interpreted as you have to have some sort of liqueur in there but a daisy means you're getting your sweetness not from sugar but from a liqueur right gotcha and margarita means daisy so i think i'm gonna piss off a bunch of people out there i don't think that tommy's margaritas are margaritas Oh, boy. So so when she says Tommy's, that's a very famous watering hole in San Francisco. If you were to ask most people in the bar industry where there's the best margarita, they'd say Tommy's. Okay. So I think they make delicious Tommy's margaritas or just Tommy's or whatever. Call it Tommy's margarita. Fine. But it's not a classic margarita. And I go to for sure and go see Julio and drink pictures of Tommy's margaritas there. I like them. I just don't think it's a real margarita. I think it's it's an interpretation of a margarita. I think that in order to make a margarita perfect, um, you need a triple sec of some sort, and I will get into this more later, a 100% blue agave tequila. I think it should be Blanco. At Tommy's generally, they use Reposado. And fresh lime juice, right? Traditionally, if you look up like online the traditional spec for a margarita, it's a doozy of a drink. It's three ounces of 80-proof booze. Which, I want to drink margaritas all day long. So for me, that's too much. I will also say that Cointreau is the only triple sec to be used. It's dry. It has proof. It's anti proof. It's, it is really orange tasting. Which is like, the, the, to me, like that's the inherent part of the margarita. Like You're not just drinking a sour. You have this orange oranginess to it. So I like to do mine by taking down the proof a little bit. So I do one and a half ounces of 100% blue agave tequila. Um, I really like using uh, Lowland Valley tequilas um, for my margaritas. So I like using like Siembra Valles or Fortaleza or Arete, something like this. Um, for Highlands, I like doing like Ocho or Siete Leguas. Uh, one and a half ounces of tequila, three quarters of an ounce of Cointreau, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice, and just a quarter ounce of one-to-one simple syrup. And I shift it okay. up real hard and I strain it over fresh ice. And then you only have a simple math, two and a quarter ounces of this booze rather than three. And you can really like, you know, that if you're going to have a few margaritas, but that 80 proof booze really like stacks up. So I like to kind of stretch it out a little bit. There is just the most delectable drink if me correctly. It's a real uh, litmus test. Of bartending, I feel like a margarita. Yeah, because if you're just off a little bit, it throws the whole drink out of off kilter. Totally, absolutely off kilter, yeah. and and then it then it sucks. Or like, like right now we have a frozen margarita on Atlanta, which is something that I have like my qualms with. Like I had to like wrestle with my internal self, being like, oh god, what do we have frozen margarita? People fucking love it though, but we put agave nectar in it for our sweetener and Cointreau. But we did both because we needed the extra sweetness in the frozen drink. But people really mess up margaritas. They don't mess them up at Leenda, I'll tell you that much. And uh, if you can get there, you can get there safely. Go 
tell Ivy that I sent you, and that'll get you absolutely nothing. But, you know, she'll make you a great drink. Well, listen, Ivy Mix, I couldn't think of a better person to bring this list home. Uh, and, and I really do. Everybody out there, get Spirits of Latin America. Pick it up. It's on Amazon. It's a good-looking – look at that. Look, that's a good-looking book right there. See that thing? And, um, and then go have a margarita with, with Ivy at Leanda in Brooklyn. Yes. And uh, thank you for being part of this journey with us. You, I think you had about four cocktails on I this list. Four. that you, you, did some heavy, you did some heavy lifting for us, and I appreciate you doing it. I'm going to drink all four of my drinks – that I announce today. Right now. Here she goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I'm going to FaceTime you back and that can, you know, you can just see the results. <laughs> I, I really do. I, as I'm talking to you right now, I can't wait to have a margarita and I'm going to do it exactly the way you said. Do it. I'll still screw, I'll still screw it up, but I'm going to do those proportions, I think, but I, I know I'll do something wrong. I'm not great at it, but, uh, but thank you for sharing your knowledge on that drink and all the other drinks you did with us. And, uh, and I hope I wish you the best with this book. I think, you know, and, and I look forward to coming and seeing you in Brooklyn Same. whenever the hell, whenever the hell we get out of this shit, you know, no kidding. Be safe out there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we will get out of this shit. And in the meantime, people can just make drinks out of books. They'd buy. <laughs> there you go. Ivy mix. Thank you. What do we have here? Ah, yes, Mac Weldon. Oh, how I love me some Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. You probably heard about their industry-leading underwear. Hell, I'm wearing a pair right now. They're so much more than just an underwear company. They really are one-stop shop for men's basics of all kinds. From socks to shirts to hoodies to their new adjustable Storm Chaser rain jacket, Mack Weldon's wares really are the longest-lasting, highest-quality items on the market. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I went to MacWeldon.com recently, ordered a whole bunch of stuff. Took me 10 minutes, and now I'm rocking a killer new Basics wardrobe. I got some 18-hour Jersey Crew neck undershirts, a couple of pairs of Ace sweatshorts, and no-show socks. Mack Weldon really does value its loyal customers. That's why they've created the Weldon Blue Loyalty Program. Here's how it works. Create an account. It's totally free. Level 1, place an order for any amount and never pay for shipping again. Level 2, once you purchase $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon, not only will you continue to receive free shipping, but you will also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year. Oh, and Level 2 also grants you access to new products before they're released to anyone else, as well as free gifts added to future orders. And now, Mack Weldon has a special offer for you, What We're Drinking listeners. For 20% off of first order, your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code DRINKING. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you no questions asked. Mack Weldon's mission is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and that shopping for them is easy and convenient. And I personally promise you this, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Wasting away again in Margaritaville. Yeah, the Margarita, man. Come on, Brad. Were you surprised that the margarita would come in at number one? I didn't think it was going to be number one. No. I mean, I knew it's like when you get to the top three and it's like, okay, you haven't said margarita yet. It's going to be three. And then it's like not three. It's like, holy crud, it's going to be the top two. And then, you know, it's martini as number two. And I'm like, this son of a, this son of a gun. I'm not going to say what I would have said. You could say son of a bitch. Oh, we curse on this fucking show this, all the this time. Son of a gun is going to put the margarita at number one. And he did it. He really did it. Well, I want to. I want to know now. You 
you've heard the entire list. Are you saying the margarita would not be your number one? I think it would be probably number three. I have to give it to you that the top three are probably number three, the top three for what it is that we're talking about. But I would have reshuffled where they were within the three. How do you feel about the Bloody Mary at number four? Okay, well, I'm biased there because I freaking hate tomato juice. And so, you well, know, that's, the, that's what, you know, like, one, in the last but, episode, we talked about that. That is the one drink I have never had. I've never had a Bloody Mary. Tomato juice makes me vomit. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. But that said, it's an important drink. It's the drink that made it okay to start drinking at breakfast. No, it defined brunch. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about drinks changing the way that we live. You know, when you have the Long Island iced tea here, number five, the Long Island iced tea made it socially acceptable to go up to a bar and just say to your bartender, hey, whatever you have back there, Put it in just there. throw it into a fucking glass and serve it to me. Before then, and, and the same thing with the martini, right? Martini, it's like, hey, barkeep, would you mind just filling this glass to the tippity top with gin, okay? Just make it cold, ice cold, and then feed it to me. They would look at you like, hey, this guy has a little bit of a drinking problem. But now we've given it a fancy sounding name with a vowel at the end of it. Oh, now you're classy. Now we'll do two of them at lunch. That was my thinking with the Long Island iced tea. And I, I'm sure there are people out there who don't agree with its, its inclusion, and especially at number five. But exactly what Brad said was my thinking is it was in it was such a wildly popular drink back in its day. And what it did was it introduced people who might otherwise never discover these spirits to a host of different spirits because it was all in there, you know, tequila, <laughs> gin, vodka, rum, triple set. It's all in there. And I think what it did was people go, oh, you know, let, maybe I'll try tequila in another cocktail. I like it in this. <laughs> so what if I try this other thing? And, totally. You know, because you're getting so many strong notes of those base oh, spirits yeah. within the Long Island Iced Tea. Oh, yes. Was that an añejo that you use? Because, <laughs> you know, it, it could be a reposado. I can't really tell. In this it is It is variation. a funny choice there to get it in. They're like, all right, now what do we do? Well, here's what we got to do now. Now we've put all we've put half the bar in this drink. Now let's drown it out with simple syrup and Coke and lemon juice. And let's just get all that in there. And so you can't taste any of it. Tokyo tea uh, is a good variation there where they actually throw some Midori into the mix. Uh, so that not only do you get the the, dro- the joy and thrill of everything behind the bar, as you say, but now I get to enjoy this fluorescent green color to all of it. What about the daiquiri at six? Too high, too low? Okay, so again, we t- no, we talked about this uh, last w- or a couple of days ago with the Mai Tai. Uh, same exact idea where it's like there's such a wide variation here. A true, pure daiquiri, whether it's, you know, as it was invented or as uh, the uh, lovely... Uh, Ernest Hemingway used to do it, his variation. Those are great drinks. And if you're going to drink anything that Ernest Hemingway drank, like, come on, you're going to be doing all right in life. But as we've come to know this drink, again, sugar bomb, and I wouldn't put the modern bastardized daiquiri anywhere near your top 20 list, but in terms of the actual pure daiquiri, that is a drink that definitely deserves to be in the top 10. Manhattan at number seven? Manhattan, I would have put a, a little bit higher, but I'm a huge rye guy. Um, and so, you know, this to me is like the prototypical showcase of rye, you know, you want to drink a rye cocktail, obviously it's going to be Manhattan. You know, controversy sells in the podcast world, Brad. So take a look at this list 20 through Mm -hmm. one and tell me the one drink where you go, dude, you fucked up. This drink shouldn't be anywhere on any top 20 list. 
Ooh, I, on the whole, out of the whole top 20? The whole top 20. Is there one drink on there? And, and if there isn't one, then, hey, I'll take those props as well. But if there's one, if there, you see one drink that stands out to you and you just think, that shouldn't have been here. It's not important. It wasn't an important drink. It's not really a good drink. I hate to pick on one, um, but I, will, I would go with the Cosmopolitan because to me, the Cosmo existed like in this very brief, it was, you know, it was like the Spice Girls, man. Like for those two or three years, it was the most important thing on the face of the planet, right? But after four years, nobody remembered it. Nobody, nobody thought about nobody's it Nobody's ordering much, them anymore. You know? and- nobody is, you know? It's, okay. It's, I hear you, but again, I'm going to go it's back. Impact. I'm going to go back to my argument. I feel like the Cosmopolitan put asses in seats in bars. Uh-huh. I believe a large swaths of mostly women were watching Sex in the City and they mm-hmm. were enchanted by the lifestyle that was being sold on that show and the ubiquity of the Cosmopolitan. They were always drinking Cosmopolitans when they were out. Yeah. And what I believe that did is it spawned so many ladies nights out things like this where they're getting and what it did is once they're in that bar then they start going oh well let me see what else is on the cocktail list let me try this drink and then they fall in love with something that's better but what i would say is that and and you take me as as a pretty uh avid uh fan enthusiast of sex in the city um is that that show if you ever went back and watched rewatched any of these episodes it, it didn't really, you know, it doesn't still hold up. You know, it was very much a product of its time. How and the Cosmo is like, dare you. Know? you. <laughs> By the way, ladies, uh, the opinions expressed here by Brad Jaffe are Brad Jaffe's alone. Okay. Re here on what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. We love sex in the city. And I yeah. won't ever, sp- okay. I won't ever speak a bad word about anything Sarah Jessica Parker's ever done. Okay, Brad. And, and Cosmo, it's the same thing. Any other drink that you have on this list, you know, for uh, lack of a better word, has a timeless aspect to it. You. you know, it, it might not be the most elegant or it might not be the most sophisticated drink in a lot of examples here, but they're timeless. From the moment that they started getting made to now, there is a pretty, uh, you know, singular thread that connects them to relevance of some degree. And I don't see that with the Cosmo personal. So, as one of America's leading practitioners of adult beverage reportage. <laughs> okay, I just drink booze for a living, let's be honest. This list comes across your desk. You see this list. You get a press release. When you look at it, do you think this is a, this is a significant list or is it the most significant list ever made? Well, obviously, it's the most significant list ever made. Well, there we go. I mean, that's not really a, a, a question to be had. I don't even know if we should do any more. Uh, this could be the last podcast. Maybe this is it. Maybe, what else is there to do? I'm quitting my job. Sure I'm not writing about booze anymore after this. Well, that's Stop. because you've had 20 cocktails and you're, yeah, that's true. And you're, that's you've true. retired to Hawaii. What a life, what a life you're living, man. Even in, even in yeah. during COVID you're, you're doing all right for yourself back there. And, and I do invite everybody to check out Google Brad Jaffe. He's got so many great pieces out there and, and I always love having you on the show and talking to you, man. I, I feel like you, uh, there's a lot of people out there that purport to know things, but you do know things, and you also uh, you. you also do the work, and that's that's something. Like you you get in and you ask questions and you dig around and you're you you take trips at least when we could take trips and you <laughs> you take this seriously. So I I think anybody that really wants to learn anything, if you really have it, I get a lot of people hit me up on social media asking me questions. You know what? 
I'll give you the answer. Read more Brad Jaffe. He he, he knows what Thank he's you. talking about, and uh, and we're gonna have him back on the show again very soon. But now I'm I gotta go do some drinking. I got a lot of I gotta you know. I'm going to try some more of these cocktails, make sure I definitely got it right. I do want to thank, first off, I want to thank Brad Jaffe for being here for both episodes of our most important uh, cocktails ever. I want to thank Ivy Mix, Simon Ford, Charles Hardwick, Amanda Bad, Birdie, H. Joseph Airman, Tom Caltabiano. And of course, I want to thank all of you for tuning in. And I really invite you to Go to at the imbiber on Instagram and Twitter. Tell me what you think about this list. Send me some photos of you drinking some of these drinks. I'd love to see it. Photos, videos, I'll put them up. I'll post them on my social media. And uh, until next time, remember the words of the great Ernest Hemingway. Courage is grace under pressure. And forget about the fact that he shot himself. All right. That's all we got. Peace, everybody. Thanks for joining us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.